Well, friends, once again, it is wonderful to see you. So glad that you are here with us this morning. A number of years ago, maybe almost 20 years ago now, I had the privilege of officiating a wedding in Seattle, Washington. I had never been to the Pacific Northwest before, and so it was quite a privilege. Um, enjoyed those beautiful sunny skies, at least when I was there. It wasn't too rainy. Enjoyed kind of looking at Mount Rainier from my airplane window. Um, so we had a, a successful and enjoyable re wedding rehearsal, then the rehearsal dinner, and then the next day we had a number of hours to do whatever we wanted to do, and um, we chose perhaps the number one tourist destination outside of Mount Rainier in Seattle uh, to go enjoy and, uh, and take it in and, and experience. Do you know what that might be? If you've ever been there, you may disagree with me. When you go to Pike's Place Fish Market, okay? Who here has been to Pike Place Fish Market? Okay, I would say a sixth of you have. That's pretty good. It's known for their fishmongers, okay? That's kind of an interesting word, right? A fishmonger. We live in Dallas. We're surrounded by like lots of land. We don't know what a fishmonger is. It's like a fish butcher. And they're known for their fish throwing where they will hurl salmon and halibut, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40 pounds, like large fishmongers can throw 50-pound halibut across the marketplace. It's really interesting. Teeming with people sees almost 10,000 people a day go to Pike's Place Fish Market. I love seeing that right off Elliott's Bay, this open-air open fish market. Imagine in your mind's eye. That's kind of like it was the day that the events are happened, the events of our passage happened by the Sea of Galilee. We know um, archaeologists tell us around the town of Magdala, which is near Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, that in the first century there were large open-air fish markets adjacent to the Sea of Galilee. So don't imagine in your mind's eye when I read this text of like a few boats coming, you know, back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. It was likely an area bustling with activity, selling fish, buying fish, trading fish, catching fish, fellowship, um, social relationships, all those things happening. How do I know that that was likely the case? Because a tax collector was there, okay? And tax collectors go where? They go where the people are. They go where the commerce is happening. I also know that there were lots of people there because that's where Jesus went. Jesus went for the same reason, in a sense, that Levi set up his booth there because that's where the people were, by the Sea of Galilee. Beloved, with that in mind, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Levi and Jesus, they're there, but not for the fish. They're there for the people. 
Beloved, remember, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, as we continue in our series through the life and ministry of Jesus. This is occurring a few months into his public ministry. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. The Sea of Galilee would also be referred to as a lake, a large freshwater lake. A large crowd came to him, and he, Jesus, began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now this Levi, we find out in the ninth chapter of Matthew, is the same person as Matthew. Matthew and Levi are the same person, a tax collector. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour the new wine into new wineskins. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. There was an unprecedented event that occurred in the White House back in 1901 when President Teddy Roosevelt invited Booker T. Washington to the White House for a formal dinner. This was the first time that a black man had ever been invited to a formal dinner at the White House and the backlash, it was swift and very severe. It's hard to even believe that words like this were, were written and common in newspapers at the time, reacting to Booker T's presence at this dinner. A newspaper in Memphis, a city at that time known for its 
um, racial hostility, wrote the following. President Roosevelt committed a blunder that is worse than a crime, and no atonement or future act of his can remove the self-imprinted stigma. At that time, there were fixed racial boundaries, and those boundaries and those lines were not to be crossed. And when Teddy Roosevelt invited Booker T. Washington to the White House to discuss race relations and various appointments in the South, the American people erupted in dismay. It's just not something that was done. Integration was not something that happened. It just, that was offensive. That was stigmatized. It's hard for us, and I think that's a good thing today, to to imagine when that was so commonplace. That's the kind of, of, of visceral reaction that the Pharisees and even the populace at large in Israel had when Jesus, a rabbi, not only invited Levi, okay, to be a disciple, but to go dine in his home with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, that's just something that wasn't done, that stigmatized his ministry, that immediately put him in the crosshairs of the Pharisees, because, I mean, you just didn't associate with tax collectors. No self-respecting person would have done such a thing. Why is that? Okay, how would you answer? What were the reasons that the Jews of the first century, the Jews who would have been there buying fish, selling fish, catching up on, on social affairs, why would they have been so offended at Levi's presence there, Matthew's presence there. The text indicates he had a booth there. Now, I don't know if it was like the booth that Lucy had in the Peanuts cartoon, you know, as she plays the psychiatrist and she tells Charlie Brown about all his phobias, that little red booth. I don't know what the booth looked like, but he had a booth there. And Levi had a booth there because the people were there. He was collecting taxes on the commerce, okay? They were hated. They were despised. I can't really think of a modern-day analogy in our context about someone who would be so vilified, so detested and reviled as a tax collector. What nationality, what, what ethnicity was Levi or Matthew? What was he? He was a Jew. For whom was he working? He was working for Israel's oppressor. So, in order to be qualified or gain the right to be a tax collector, a few things had to happen. Either you were a very wealthy individual or you were part of a local group and you would join forces and you would make a bid to the Roman government. The bid entailed how much you thought you could collect in this given area. And if Rome thought, okay, that's a good amount, I think that will satisfy our requirements of that area, then 
We will accept a bid. There was so much bribery and corruption at work behind the scenes, which really does indicate likely the kind of person that Levi or Matthew was. So you would make this bid to the authorities. If it was accepted, okay, that's your quota. Let's say you had to collect $100,000 in that area. Anything over $100,000 was what? That was profit for you. If you didn't collect, if you were not capable of collecting $100,000, that would be your loss that you would have to deal with. The amount of exploitation that happened to the Jews at the hands of tax collectors was amazing. They were exploiting their own people. They were impoverishing their own people, you know, at their benefit. They were viewed as the worst kind of traitor was a tax collector. Now, look at the narrative. Look at how Mark writes this. Remember, Mark was connected to Peter um, in the early church, even though Mark wasn't uh, a disciple per se. He had interviewed Peter and was probably Peter's translator. Just look at the way, kind of literarily, this text lays out. Verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them as he walked along. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. I will say this also too. This has not a lot to do with what we're talking about right now, but sometimes it's good to say things that are not related to what we're doing right now. Um, just in terms of like, even describing the passage this way bears the witness that this is, this is written by someone who had spoken to an eyewitness. Someone who was very familiar. Just if you even looked at the name frequencies that were going on circa like 30 AD around Galilee and that area, okay? These names, just these names like Levi, son of Alphaeus, I mean, corresponds exactly. This is eyewitness testimony. We know Levi's father's name. He's the son of Alphaeus, sitting at what? Not just a booth, Mark tells us, a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up and followed him. Verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, look at the way Mark describes it. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were with the Pharisees saw him eating with whom? the sinners and tax collectors. They asked his disciples, why does he eat with whom? Tax collectors and sinners. Okay? Repetition is showing us the point. Tax collectors and sinners were not often found in the company of rabbis, self-respecting rabbis. Just wasn't done. So let's think about this. What would you think, just Act, act like this is really true. If you knew someone who worked for the mafia, let's say they weren't like in leadership with the mafia, but they were employed by the mafia. 
and they weren't taking the lives of people, even like a courier for the mafia. What kind of person would you think that that figure would be? Would you think that person would be an upright person, a moral person? Would you want your son or your daughter to be married to this individual who was truly and really employed by the mafia, fully aware of all that was going on? Of course you wouldn't. You likely, if you weren't a Christian, you wouldn't go to dinner with that person. Again, it's hard to put into context just how hated and reviled these people were. Well, who were the sinners? We know what the tax collectors were. They were traitors. They had betrayed their own people. They exploited their own people. Sinners were people like, were, like um, your average Jewish uh, person who was attending uh, synagogue and loved the Lord but was not in the Pharisees. That's not who this is talking about. This is talking about like flagrant sinners. This is talking about people who like we would say, you know, weren't attending church. They were wild and crazy and enjoyed kind of a party lifestyle. So you have traitors and you have like just wild, crazy partiers at Levi's house. That's the only kind of people that would hang out with tax collectors. Okay? So, there's dismay. There is, there's true concern. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They didn't get it. They didn't understand. This is like, doesn't make any sense. Lots of cognitive dissonance. And then Jesus says this, which early in my Christian life, this made it even more confusing. <clears throat> Verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I can remember where I was in my apartment reading that verse, Mark 2, verse 17. I was a Christian. I had professed faith. I was growing in my faith in the Lord Jesus. And this verse confounded me. It seemed antithetical to what I had learned. Like, look again. Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why would that have, um, you know, maybe involved some cognitive dissonance for me or maybe for you? Why is that confusing on the surface? I was like, I didn't realize there was this big group of righteous people that didn't need saving. I thought that was like surprising. So Jesus just came for sinners and he's obviously connecting the Pharisees with the righteous. But I thought they were the bad guys. What's the obvious answer? These, his words are dripping with irony. Okay? Who are the righteous? How many righteous are there? None. There are no righteous. Not even one. Jesus' words are just dripping with irony. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came for those who are sick. Obviously, Pharisees and others, you're in the same boat that they are. In other words, everyone is like Levi, the tax collector. The Pharisees, ironically, were the sickest of all. 
How do you know? You know, you know, it's not uncommon. Sometimes we'll struggle with our assurance of salvation, you know. Um, you know Lord, do, do I really know you? Do you really know me? One helpful diagnostic question is, is this. Um, do you know your need? Do you know your overwhelming need for the grace of God through the great physician? Do you really believe that apart from the grace of God in Christ Jesus, you would be utterly lost? Do you agree that in your natural self, you're indistinguishable from a Pharisee? The irony of the Christian life is that it's those who know their need, okay, who, who know the Lord Jesus most of all, who know they need to cling to him, to run to him. They know how much they depend on him. If he just let us go our own way for five minutes, it would be a total disaster. And beloved, the reality also is like we have no idea how sick we really are. Like Robbie talked about that as, as he prefaced the confession of sin. If you look with me at the confession of sin, friends, we are sicker than we know. Our confession of sin reads, Heavenly Father, our inclination towards sin, it astounds us. Like, that's another great diagnostic criteria. Can you pray that? Is that true for you? That even as a believer, your propensity to sin, your inclination to sin astounds you. The irony of the Christian life is the more that you grow, the more the Spirit is at work in your life, the more you will realize how true that is. The more you will be astounded at how you're inclined and drawn to sin. And what's the natural byproduct of that? Oh, Lord Jesus, save me. Grow me. Pour out your grace on me. I have no hope apart from you. There was a whole group of people who did not know their need. They thought they were fine and healthy in every way. That's why they were Jesus' nemesis, because they did not know their need. Something new was coming. These, these old ways, um, these old wineskins, all of these legalistic ways, I mean, these Pharisees, they had felt righteous because they had documents that were called like the Mishnah or... or the Talmud, okay, and they would have all these interpretations of Old Testament law. I mean, interpretations on interpretations, layers on layers on layers that gave the veneer of righteousness. Jesus was coming to blow all that up, to show people their need for him. Look with me at verses 18 through 22. Jesus is gonna give the answer here, and the answer, interestingly, 
is a person. And before I read this, I want you to see if you can tell how Jesus communicates to them that he is the answer. He is the great physician. He is the answer to their problems. Notice how he interacts with the practice of fasting from John's disciples and the Pharisees who, who were fasting according not to the Old Testament necessarily, but these Talmudic practices of fasting twice a week, some of these man-made traditions. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting, and Jesus is not critiquing fasting here, um, so to speak. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. How is that the answer? The people listening to Jesus who knew their Old Testament knew that God revealed himself in the Old Testament as what? A bridegroom. As the husband to his people. And he was saying fasting is not appropriate. Fasting would often denote mourning and longing for Messiah to come and make all things right. Well, you don't have to do that. Why? The bridegroom is here. The bridegroom is here. I am he. I am the bridegroom. That's the logic. That's why you wouldn't fast. That's why you wouldn't mourn in his presence. The new covenant in Christ, the bridegroom is here. Verse 20, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. In this new covenant, in this new creation, there is no room for these man-made legalistic structures. New things are coming, he is saying. That's why fasting has no place here at this time. In the new covenant, Jesus is making all things new, not by law keeping, but through spirit wrought change in our lives and our hearts. We obey the law in the new covenant, why? Not because we have to, of course we have to, why? Because we want to, because we love him, because we long to honor him. We long to obey because of this inner transformation. I'm gonna read a quote here and I'll be done. I've mentioned this to you before, C.S. Lewis, he would give these broadcasts during World War II. On March 11th, 1944, he gave the following broadcast. He said, the, Brit he says, the Christian life is a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. And this process goes on very far inside of you. The Holy Spirit of the living God in the new covenant through Christ is, is changing you from the inside out. One's most private wishes, one's point of view are the things that have to be changed. I love the way he writes. He says, take the common expression, I guess this was a British expression, cold is charity. How do we come to say that? 
We come to say that through experience. We've learned how unsympathetic, patronizing, and conceited charitable people often are, sadly. And yet hundreds of thousands of them started out really anxious to do good. But after they'd done it, somehow it wasn't as good as it ought to have been. In other words, over time, like non-believing, charitable giving can can lead to pride and presumption and condescension, okay? That's not going to change you. He writes the old story, what you are comes out in what you do. A crab apple tree can't produce eating apples. As long as the old self is there, he's really talking about unconverted man, its taint will be over all we do. We try to be religious. We, we try more, but we become Pharisees. We try to be kind, and we become patronizing. No, the real cure lies far deeper. Out of ourselves and into Christ we must go. And he says this, and I find this to be remarkable and certainly true in my own life. The change won't, for most of us, happen suddenly and all in a moment. He writes, and I must admit that for most Christians, the change will only be really beginning at the end of our present lives. But there are some in whom it goes further, even before death, far enough for you to see it. Can you relate to this? Like mature saints in the faith who know the Lord Jesus, you you can see Christ in them. He writes their faces and their voices, they're different when you meet them. You know you're up against something which, so to speak, begins where you leave off. In other words, that's not humanly empowered. Something stronger and more alive than ordinary humanity. That's what the new covenant in Christ was bringing. True change. Change from the inside out. Change only accessible through Jesus Christ. He's the bridegroom. He's the one in whom we place all our faith, all our trust, all our hope. Thank God that the bridegroom, beloved, has come. And one day, one day, this table will enjoy the wedding supper of our bridegroom forever and ever and ever and ever. And we can't fathom how wonderful that will be. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we just don't have the time We don't have the right words to thank you and praise you for the newness of the new covenant wrought in Christ. We thank you that in Christ, as we've trusted in him by grace through faith, our sin is imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us, but that's not all. The Holy Spirit of the living God gives us new hearts and new desires and and new inclinations and makes us new from the inside out to where we long to obey you, long to honor you. Oh Lord, we long for that day when the full transformation will come when we dine at the table of our bridegroom. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ his person and work, his life and death, his blood and righteousness. Help us fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen and amen.